0: Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Joseph Kelly, a Fordham alum from the International Political Economy and Development Program, or IPED. He's been working with Catholic Relief Services and was recently awarded Fordham's Swanstrom Bearwald Award. It recognizes members of the Fordham community for their commitment to the service of faith and the promotion of justice. Joseph's joining me by phone from Austin Texas good morning Joseph
1: good morning Robin how are you
0: doing good so tell me what was the last country you visited
1: the last country I was in was uh, in the southeastern corner of Turkey uh, near the Syrian border
0: and what were you doing there describe your experience
1: um, I was there working with a organization called Catholic or Police Services CRS supporting uh, programs that are assisting uh, victims of the ongoing conflict in, uh, in northern Syria, so basically uh, supporting folks who had to flee their homes in northern Syria and uh, seeking refuge.
0: Joseph, can you um, recap some of the culture, some of the problems that are going on in Syria for our listeners who might not be aware?
1: Sure. Since 2011 uh, was basically when we had the Arab Spring that uh, was taking part across uh, much of the Middle East, you know, a series of protests began in, in Syria against the current regime, and Unlike in other countries, the Arab Spring led to a succession, sometimes peaceful, sometimes not so peaceful, transition of power. Uh, In Syria, that transition has not happened. And so, what's led to is a further entrenchment of two sides the regime uh, fully controls the military based in Damascus, and then these groups that have uh, emerged some political, some paramilitary, um, that are basically in opposition to the, uh, the regime, and so a uh, civil war is broken out uh, through through many parts of, of Syria. It's compartmentalized in some areas, so it's not you know, typical through the whole country, um, but you know, there are some hot spots uh, where the conflict is particularly intense, and in northern Syria, the, the city of Aleppo specifically is, is one of those areas.
0: So what did you see when you were there? What was the experience like, the culture like there?
1: Most of my work was on the border, uh, so I was on, on the Turkish side just because it's still quite dangerous. To, to cross over to Syria, given there's, there's still a lot of indiscriminate uh, attacks and bombings that are carried out, but the, you know, for for the most part, speaking with Syrians and meeting with Syrians, a very educated population, uh, people who've been used to a, a high standard of living. Uh, you know, under the regime, there are a lot of basic services, education, uh, and economy that thrive, and so you do have a very literate and developed nation in, in many parts, which is surprising for us in some regards.
0: Why surprising?
1: You know, a lot of these, these conflict countries are, are pockets. Uh, you know, there's times that just the, the government is not able to uh, carry out basic social services. I'm not saying it's 100 percent covered uh, within Syria, uh, but there was a, a great extent of basic services, uh, like I was saying, medical, um, you know, hospitals, clinics.
0: So it's better off than what you usually see in situations like this. Correct. And you were saying there were bombings there. I mean, how nervous were you? How scary is the situation? You're going into this country with the civil unrest going on. So how dangerous is it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's still very dangerous. It's unlike uh, operations or, or typical humanitarian operations that, that have been able to, uh, to function in the past. And I say that, you know, with regards to Iraq, uh, Afghanistan where you had very defined lines uh, of engagement. And, you know, even though there were very risky operations for cross-line interventions, the humanitarian corridor was, was often well-defined in, in those areas. In, in the situation in Syria, the, uh, the collateral damage or the potential for collateral damage is, uh, is just it's extremely high, given that the bombings that, that continue either by uh, rocket attacks or, or aerial attacks don't necessarily carry the precision. Uh, nor are targets consistent, nor well-identified. We've heard stories of civilian parts of uh, of cities being being bombed, of of clinics and schools and other public institutions that were not associated with any military target, but yet for one reason or another have been hit. So this this presents a a huge challenge for the humanitarian community in terms of being able to set up operations within Syria. And, of course, there's the whole political engagement. I mean, the the government is still nominally in charge of of the country. They grant access and and the right to work to a very limited uh, number of uh, of humanitarian actors. Those are mainly based in Damascus. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of that that aid is curtailed a bit or, or very much influenced by where the regime wants that aid should go. And so you have uh, another part of the humanitarian community who is not fully sanctioned uh, or approved to work in, uh, in Syria by the Syrian government who's trying to reach these areas you know obviously as, as humanitarian uh, organizations we abide, abide by a, a principle of neutrality, so you know we 're not necessarily you know, looking to supporting one side or the other, just trying to you know, attend to the needs of uh, of those most uh, impacted by this this conflict
0: so Joseph, take me through. Exactly what you do. You're you're dropped off by plane, train, automobile in Syria. So, what is a typical day like for an aid worker there?
1: Yeah, um, my day is is not that that glamorous, to be quite uh, <laughs> quite honest. I, I sit back on the logistics side uh, of of things in, in an office, but uh, organizations uh, like CRS work pretty exclusively through through partners, um, and it's our, our partner organizations. So NGOs or, or groups, uh, social society groups that are formed within northern Syria, you know, that have connections with communities, that have connections with these populations often founded in a lot of these cities, uh, it's, it's those guys who, who are on the front lines. And, and these are the guys who, you know, a typical day is running supplies into into communities that, that have been affected. So a typical day could be ushering or accompanying a truck with 100 metric tons of flour, on the back of it, and then doing distribution in villages uh, and in areas where there's high concentrations so of displaced people. It's a very market-based approach. So the items that we are trying to procure, um, we are trying to, to work through Syrian vendors. It's a uh, you know something kind of a lesson learned. You know, it allows us to be more agile to procure items that are more uh, culturally and locally accepted, as well as Support or not supplant the, the local economy that already, already exists within Syria.
0: You say this is lessons learned. How, what was the process before that you saw was not necessarily working?
1: Uh, well, and it is justified in, in certain situations, but there's a uh, heavy dependence on, on procurement out of the region. Yeah. Administratively, you can procure you know, a certain volume of items from halfway around the world because of pre existing contracts or suppliers and vendors that, that exist. And so what you do is you, but you mobilize a tremendous amount of resources to bring in those goods, and it's more of a, you're you're subject to certain delays. Now, organizations, like I said, I mean there's still justifications for doing so, and and we do so. You know the operations that the CRS are engaged in allows us to, uh, you know because we're let's say hitting uh, targets for populations in the tens of thousands and not the hundreds of thousands, it allows us to work on the scale of local economies particularly in Syria that it had a, a fairly robust local economy, a fairly robust you know, uh, local development, and so it's able to still satisfy uh, you know, the needs of,
0: um, of its citizens. Joseph Kelly, about how many countries have you worked in so far since you started with Catholic Relief Services?
1: From CRS, um, I've been in about six different countries.
0: Six um, different countries.
1: Yeah, my, my career certainly started more of a development uh, trajectory. And then transitioned midway through my career into more complex emergency and humanitarian uh, environments.
0: Complex. So, explain that.
1: So, a working environment such as Afghanistan. I was in Afghanistan in two thousand nine to two thousand eleven. You know, you have an, uh, an active armed engagement uh, happening within the country, which requires a whole nuanced way of uh, of looking at things. A creative approach to to your security. This, this whole. Uh, critical message of, of neutrality, of impartiality, a humanitarian actor in in a in an aid environment and a uh, working environment that was uh, heavily politicized and, and uh, militarized. These are you know some of the uh, the factors that make it a little more complex than your average you know, natural disaster that might happen in the country. That although very complex, like Haiti was was certainly uh, complex but doesn't carry kind of the social, political, military, uh, other factors that compound it. So,
0: so Joseph, here in the U.S., you know, we can go into our kitchen, turn on a faucet and get some fresh water or, you know, groan about lugging groceries home from the store. So what type of aid have you seen is pretty much universal no matter which country you're in?
1: You know, particularly in a, a war-torn environment, you know, it's access to it's food, uh, your basic food.
0: Food, water, shelter type security. thing.
1: Security. Yeah, and then it becomes water. And then what, when water becomes an issue, it also, hygiene, hygiene, health becomes a, a massive issue. You know, one thing that aid agencies are paying more and more greater attention to is particularly the also the needs of uh, women and children in, in these conflicts. Why? I think there's just been, you know, uh, within the general aid community and, and particularly under... Uh, Uh, former uh, Secretary of State Clinton, uh, you know, a renewed emphasis or a a greater push on gender, you know, and a balance in gender programming, looking really at the different roles uh, that men and women play in their own development. And so it's looking at when you're looking at, you know, let's say livelihoods, it's not just focusing on uh, the physical uh, inputs, but, but some of the other areas of of livelihoods that could look at, you know, uh, savings groups, savings and lending groups that that really tap on women in the community uh, to get together or health aspects that revolve around uh, uh, livelihoods as those women generally tend to be the the primary health caregivers within a a household.
0: So you're finding that the the issues that affect men, and correct me if I'm wrong, tend to be more focused towards maybe um, funding the household, whereas females... Take care of the household more, and those are different directions that need to be taken in satisfying each of their needs.
1: Um, yeah, and I wouldn't say it's, it's even that that simple. I'd say it's a little more complex. I mean, there's there's millions of households throughout the developing world that are where the women, one reason or another, the not only the principal healthcare educator, but also the principal income earner. Uh, and so, you know, our approach is, is certainly needs to be more nuanced to, to look at the role of women uh, in, in all these different facets. Of you know, integral human development, you know, be it income, be it health, be it education, social development, et cetera, and looking more creatively at uh, you know how how do we involve, how do we engage more actively, proactively in coming up with with solutions and solutions that are thought of and designed by by women, by women in the community, by women and men, you know, because it's a it's a joint process. And I think you know what we have really moved towards is gathering that input of, of listening, creating the feedback loops and incorporating, you know, the the real-time evidence that we, we see in the field, as well as giving a greater voice to to women in the, in the community to determine, you know, what, what is the best and most logical uh, solution to, to some of these development challenges.
0: Now, Joseph Kelly, you said um, a, a large part of your role with Catholic Relief Services are partnerships. So how do you reach out to women?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of this has to do with Particularly in, in, uh, in conservative cultures, you know, it's, it's essential to have women on staff and women who can engage. Uh, there's a lot of informal networks and uh, in, in groups that exist. You know, women often gather uh, informally you know, through, through one activity or another, and we're really able to uh, take advantage. So, like for example, uh, midwives. So, looking at mother and child health, you know there is the practice of midwifery. We're able to tap into those pre-existing social uh, kind of groups that, that exist. And you know, start training people up. Start training people up on on improved hygiene practices and true improved uh, mother and and child health and nutrition uh, practices. You know, like for prenatal or postnatal uh, practices, which can help prevent diseases, improve nutrition, prevent wasting. So it's it's really working through a lot of pre existing uh, groups so that informally are already you know I've been around for centuries and then leveraging using those as platforms to build in, you know, basic health care and really then kind of uh, working off those platforms to build up even bigger and further into issues like agriculture or natural resource management or income generation.
0: Now, Joseph, are you finding, and let's use hygiene for an example, um, are you finding when you're teaching these practices that it's something that they... Don't know, or are you teaching them something, or retraining them in something that they sort of know, but they just don't have access? Let's say to clean water for hygiene. So, yeah. which one is it?
1: So, it, it's it's a lot, uh, particularly in these types of uh, humanitarian crisis. It's access. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of uh, people, particularly in the Muslim tradition, are extremely. There's traditions and practices of, of cleansing and in good hygiene that that are uh, have been caught again, throughout throughout the ages, and, and it's part of uh, the culture. So what we're looking at is a serious lack of access uh, to implements like these hygiene implements. And so what agencies, you know, like CRS do are provide inputs that are maybe not there, such as soap, sediment hygiene products, et cetera. Mm-hmm. As well as looking at alternatives, you know, what are local, low-cost, low-tech interventions that can help these people that that might not be readily available? So that could be anything from small chlorine kits for disinfecting water uh, to these kind of disinfectant packets uh, that have been produced by companies like Johnson & Johnson uh, to disinfect dirty water. Mm -hmm. Looking at giving implements and. You know, as, as families are pushed out of their homes and, and forced to adapt to a different lifestyle, I mean, it becomes very crowded in, into a tent. You may know, have 20 people in what would be usually a, a, five, a five- to seven-person tent. And so that puts all new sets of behaviors, and, uh, and it, it's working with those people to, to work with that new, new space and to find areas for, for clean water because things that cluttered can get very, are contaminated uh, very quickly. You know, you see this as well with you've got a family that uh, you know, one family household that was previously uh, maybe sharing a latrine just within the household, and now they're sharing it with 50 other people. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, act, the exasperation or acceleration of, of the use of you know was a, a typical practice. That there's just all sorts of new behaviors, and new you know designs that that, that NGOs work with these communities on, on behavior change and how to adapt to these these circumstances.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon speaking with Fordham alum Joseph Kelly, who works with Catholic Relief Services and was recently awarded Fordham's Swanstrom Fairwall Award. So, Joseph, how long does Catholic Relief Services usually stay in one country?
1: We typically stay for the long haul. I mean, our—we although we are you know, very well known for our emergency and, and initial humanitarian response, as long as we can stay, as long as you know security uh, permits us to, we we make an investment. Uh, you know, the majority of the countries that CRS has worked in has been the—and I'm saying working for 50 plus years has been the result of one catastrophe or another where we were invited in uh, to work in that country. And then as we started to work, uh, we found that we had value added or we could contribute uh, positively to a more long-term uh, development solution. pure investment investing is certainly, uh, it's not punctual. its It's, it's looking at the the immediate needs, but also transitioning to midterm uh, and longer term needs.
0: So give me an example. What would, let's say, be the shortest amount of time you've spent somewhere? And the, um, I don't even want to ask the longest because I'm assuming there's some places that you're still in. But what might be the shortest amount of time that Catholic Relief Services has stayed in one place?
1: I mean, I, I would say, like, a, there was the, the program in, in Iraq um, where CRS started up operations. But because the security, because the way we do our work didn't allow us to stay behind it just impeded our work to such a level, and insecurity rose to such a level that we, you know, we pulled out of Iraq. Uh, I think within within a year of being there, physically. Now we still work with partners, um, but physically, it just became untenable and um, unsustainable for us.
0: And that leads me to my next question: Are you married?
1: Uh, I'm not, but I'm engaged.
0: You're engaged. <laughs> well, congratulations, yeah. first of all. So how? Do you and your fiance handle the uncertainty of being in places that are very, uh, the uncertainty of you being in places that are pretty dangerous?
1: Yeah, well, I, I do have the uh, the fortune of being with a uh, you know, someone who certainly <laughs> who I describe as being more of a, a bedrock and a uh, you know a stronger uh, person than I probably ever could be. Um, I actually met met her in Afghanistan, uh, and so she's no stranger to these environments and, and uh, understands. I think, well, the inherent risks and dangers. Um, you know, it's, it's not to say that it's a cakewalk. It's still uh, very tough and it's a conversation that happens, uh, every time one of these assignments comes up. But, you know, I think there's something that just draws, uh, people like, like myself and Michelle to these engagements. Uh, you know, this, uh, you know, a, a real desire and a kind of vocation, you know, to, to work on these conflicts humanitarian issues. I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's the, the environment's very fluid.
0: Is, she, is, is your uh, you fiancé a uh, 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 AIDS worker also?
1: Uh, she was. She uh, was she up until about six months ago. Uh, she's uh, since gone back uh, to, to grad school for further education.
0: So can I ask you why you put yourself at such risk? You know, it's,
1: it's a great question. Uh, and I think it's, <laughs> some of it is you certainly know the risks. Um, that are there, you become more comfortable with them after, you know, uh, taking on on more and more assignments. You begin to understand uh, the fluidity of the environment. You're trained in best practices and security protocols to mitigate. You also, we also have a lot of faith in, uh, you know, the organizations that we work with in terms of, you know, our our supervisors, our bosses uh, who have analyzed uh, the situation and, uh, you know, and and knowing that we have a very conservative security policy that we're not, that are going to be put in directly harm's way. There's always a chance of collateral damage, but and there's a chance of collateral damage of me walking across the street in Austin.
0: Do so. you try to just it put it really, out of your mind? It
1: does. I mean, because yeah, you can't. You can't focus on it. Um, I mean, certainly there's there's been times where it does get a little hairy, and, and you do get a little spooked and frightened, but uh, if that's what you were constantly thinking about, there's no way you get your job done. Uh, and so you... You invest in, in the relationships. You invest in, in yourself in, in the work that needs to be done, and certainly it, it focuses your mind on on those immediate needs. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say that security and attention to security and your personal security is thrown out the window because that's not true. I mean, that's that's something that we we hammer in every day. There's uh, you know, a review of uh, of what the security situation is, particularly if we're going to move or particularly if there's going to be operations I'd say. Uh, we take it very seriously. But you know, again, I think the fact that you're not alone. Also, you know you have this support network of these other aid workers or uh, colleagues, you know that, that are doing the same thing. And, and, and yes, it's dangerous. You know, I don't want to speak down of the inherent risks that there are, but you just you find a you find a way to manage. Uh,
0: Joseph, which country impacted you the most, and why?
1: Uh, I'd have to say Afghanistan, based on a couple of reasons. One, it was a major transition in my career. It was the the first time I had gone into, I, I worked in South America uh, for a number of years, and very rich experience and made incredible friendships, and, and did some really terrific work there. Afghanistan was the first time that I was thrown into complex emergency humanitarian environments, and what made it so pivotal for me was the uh, the amount of work that we were able to get done, the intensity of of the work pace, the, the dedication of, of, of staff in these environments is just. It's humbling. I speak more so of our national, our Afghan colleagues who were working with with CRS at the time. Um, you know, people who had lost homes, who had lost families, and you know, who were just driven by a genuine desire to to improve the conditions of you know, of their countrymen was was extremely gratifying.
0: Do you have an example of of, a, of a, maybe a story, an example of, of of what you what you mean? Sure. Uh,
1: you know, there was a. An engineer I, I worked with in Western Afghanistan, who a very accomplished engineer, and we were starting up programs, and this was an engineer who had lost everything during the uh, years of the, the Taliban, who had moved his family uh, across the border, lived as a refugee, and you know lived a very meager existence for a number of years, came back, and built everything up from the bottom. And, and you mean physically built up? Physically built up. So it was home, uh, built up a career. You know, re educated himself and attended university to get accredited because some of his credits weren't recognized anymore. But basically built up his credentials uh, and his reputation. And we were lucky enough to uh, to hire him as a uh, an engineer. And We were doing a bunch of
0: drinking water systems in rural areas. Um, and what year was this about? When were you in Afghanistan? This was in two thousand nine. Okay, so he so you hired uh, this gentleman. Basically, uh, you know, we
1: were we were subject to a little bit you know the, the funding cycle. So as projects grew. And contracted, so did our, our staffing. Uh, and I remember uh, quite clear that, you know, our program was moving out of western Afghanistan. It was moving more into programs becoming larger. And and the programs were shifting. And what it basically meant was a, you know, we needed shift personnel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that just incredibly impressed me is, you know, the lines
0: in Afghanistan, uh,
1: you know, there's, there's very marked tribal lines and people are very anchored to, to where they're from. And this this engineer. So
0: they're born there. They usually stay there. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Exactly. Uh, they've got their family relations there, um, and you know, other than some maybe moves to the the capital city Kabul, you, you're, you're primarily going to stay where you're from. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and these these programs that we started. This program we were starting up in Gore. and this was this is a extremely remote, extremely underdeveloped uh, a town. Even for you know, Afghanistan standards, you know, many jokes were cracked at by Afghans itself about just how it's a one donkey town.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, but the work, you know, the, the needs were were tremendous. It was an extremely harsh environment uh, in terms of the brutal winters, uh, colds, the, the scarcity of, uh, of basic necessities, et cetera. So it was a very, you know, I would say Spartan lifestyle that we were asking people to to take on, and again, trying to recruit. Out of there was very challenging, just because you didn't have a lot of uh, engineers. And, and this guy, you know, approached approached me at one point, and Joseph, so I understand, you know, we're starting programs in, in Central uh, Afghanistan. I just want to let you know, you know, that I would be very honored to, to maintain, to continue my services uh, with CRS and working for the Afghan people. And it just totally came out of the blue. I mean, the the implications of that were this guy was going to move up uh, to city,
0: and leave 12 hours every- by
1: road, and leave everything uh, he knew, family. Yeah, he really knew his family and worked in an area that was completely foreign to him. But again motivated by this this desire to genuinely seek out, you know, uh seek out better development solutions for, for Afghanistan as a whole. And he did, he spent, you know, about a year and a half up there and you know, was just one of these guys that really rallied the you know, he was kind of a legging for for team morale. You could point to engineering a and, and he was, he was the, the go-to guy and, and people really respected him uh, tremendously for you know, decisions he made just the kind of the, the moral compass that he set for the teams in terms of work ethic in terms of uh, you know why we're doing what we're doing, it, it, was, it was humbling to see that, that level of self-sacrifice when this man had dozens of other options in the private sector or others that he could have taken that probably would have been more lucrative uh, as opposed to you know staying with an NGO.
0: So he's like a living embodiment of, like, your ultimate goal as an aid worker with Catholic Relief Services.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he was by far one of the few and far between, uh, you know, shining examples of, of a staff member, of a colleague you would aspire to, to be and, and to work
0: with. Yeah. So, Joseph, dealing with one humanitarian crisis after another, I would assume, can become overwhelming. So how do you keep from getting discouraged when you see all the work that needs to be done? Uh,
1: you definitely take breaks. <laughs> you gotta you <laughs> step out of the room. You gotta, you know, uh, take a lot of, of deep breaths. You gotta kind of unplug. Uh, and, and agencies uh, like Sirius are, are good at, at providing that that type of, of staff care. You know, making
0: sure they're what are video, video games. What's how do, you, how, um, how, how do you how do you unplug? <laughs> you unplug. Uh, you how have, do you personally uh, unplug?
1: How do I personally unplug? Uh-huh. Uh, I escape through through travel. Uh, so, you know, wait a minute! Out. Wait a
0: minute! So you travel <laughs> to these countries as an aid worker, and then you escape through travel?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, believe it or not. I mean, and this is, you know, this is one of the things that have propelled me as an as an aid worker, uh, or, or to have chosen this life. Is I'm energized. It, it, it gives me perspective. Um, it really answers, I think, to a, uh, something deep inside of this desire to see the world and try to make sense of it through interactions with with different cultures. It's just, I find it. Incredibly inspiring and, and energizing, and life's teacher, broaden broadened horizons uh, uh, for me. So, you know, I again, I don't to take a rest. I don't necessarily. I won't. I tra- wouldn't travel from <laughs> Afghanistan to Afghanistan, let's say, you know, Pakistan or Iraq. <laughs> uh, but you know, traveling through, uh, you know, through other parts of. Of uh, Asia when I was in that region, or um, you know, down to to South America. Are you one 80. of those people
0: who would go to Hawaii and then try to figure out how you could help the people of Hawaii? <laughs> You're supposed to be vacationing no. and relaxing. I'm one of those people who would go to Hawaii
1: and then figure out how the people of Hawaii could help me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's so that the way to unplug. <laughs> that is definitely the way to unplug. So, my last question: What words of wisdom? Would you leave the next generation of iPad students?
1: You know, uh, to you know, continue to explore, to 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 push your boundaries. It's it's amazing what what individuals can accomplish and what individuals as a group, as a collective, can accomplish when really uh, pushed. You know, and and, and to, to challenge themselves to get out of their comfort zones. You know, I think wasn't as one of the biggest professional pluses about this this job. It certainly pushes your comfort zones, but it it reveals a lot of uh, about yourself. And if you're willing to take those risks. You know, I found them to be the payoffs have been extremely rewarding in terms of the friendships you make, the you know the, the lasting impact of uh, of your work, um, you know your your kind of imprint upon this world. And you know, I'm not saying that's that's for everyone. I mean, the iPad program is certainly made up of, of different tracks and, and careers. But uh, I I would certainly say that you know, it has been something that you know there's a little bit of, of I guess life lessons or life advice that that I've found has has paid off in spades.
0: And where are you off to next?
1: Heading to Rome uh, in a couple days for some partner meetings, and then I'll be in Beirut after that.
0: In Beirut. Okay. Joseph Kelly, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Rob. Pleasure talking to you.
0: My thanks to Joseph Kelly with Catholic Relief Services and my producer, Alan Canlick. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.